The Poison Pen Affair Chapter 22 A whisper of sound woke Stella, or did not exactly awaken her, but made her aware that she was awake. She felt a frizzing between her shoulders and an inexplicable sense that something was approaching her room. I'm getting up, she told her mother, who had died so long ago. Stella pictured her leaning out at the gold bar of heaven. Stella's mother held three lilies in her hand, and she was Stella and she was saying, Stella, I rely on you to stir the porridge. Stella shook herself. Imaginings like that one in a younger woman might feel poetic, but at eighty two they sounded cuckoo. Therefore, Stella employed Holmesian investigative techniques to impose order on her early morning thought processes. The scope for investigation inside her little institutional bedroom was narrow. But in Fairmont Manor, a person used what she had, or used nothing. So, lying quite still with her eyes shut tight, Stella strained to hear whether the whispering sound would come again. What was that? Just the quack of a weighted door shutting itself somewhere in Daffodil Corridor. And now, the mewing of Ollie's trolley wheels nearing, and then passing by Stella's room. But the strange little noise that had awakened Stella in the first place had sounded more like a snake's hiss, although snakes were obviously unlikely early callers in Fairmount Manor. The whisper didn't come again, but nobody, not even Mrs. Perdita Warren, the director of Fairmount Manor, with all her administrative powers, could stop Stella enjoying this small mystery. She opened her eyes and looked about her. Room 34 had not been built to please, but early sunshine shone through the window over her bed. She dipped her hand into the square patch of sunlight that warmed her belly and turned her nightgown from white to soft yellow. She retrieved her glasses from the resting place on the laminate bedside table that Fairmount Manor provided for residence. She put them on. Her gaze rested upon the soft red cover of The Prisoner of Zunda. This was the book that Cassandra had given her in the effects closet a few days earlier, just before locking Stella inside. Stella was enjoying rereading this elderly copy of Zenda, as much for its thick, cottony pages as for the rip-snorting story it told. She straightened her glasses, and that was when she saw it. A white rectangle on the grey linoleum floor. The intriguing whisper of sound had heralded its delivery into her room under her door. Somebody's written me a letter. Her heart began to beat too quickly for health. An unwelcome image muscled its way to the front of her mind. It was the memory of just such a letter. A single envelope, unstamped, which 
had arrived at her home a few months before she had come to Fairmount Manor. And the thought of that earlier envelope, lying on the front doormat of the house she had sold to come to Fairmont, made Stella feel sick to her stomach. She touched her palms to her cheeks, the sort of touch that her mother always used to calm Stella down in childhood crisis. They never leave us, do they? One's parents, I mean. She thought of her own daughter, Junie, and wondered whether it was the same for her, despite everything. Did her dark daughter ever wake to feel Stella's arms around her and her cheek against hers? The envelope lay with one corner hidden under the bottom edge of the door. She stared at the letter. Don't be afraid. But she was afraid. Fearful that somehow her name would be written on the envelope in strong, masculine, black, backward, slanting letters, Mrs. Stella Royman, standing out clearly in green ink. Her breath stopped. She was right to feel afraid. He had found her. No, he has not, Stella said aloud. Once a fool, always a fool, Stella Ryman. That man is far away. This is only a letter somebody else has sent you. But who? No other letter had arrived under her door since her arrival at Fairmont. She threw aside her slippery duvet and prepared to address the question. Through long habit, she rolled, her knees first, towards the edge of the bed furthest from the wall. This movement took her through that bitterly painful angle that she could never seem to avoid when sitting up, no matter which part of her she led with. Once her feet were on the floor, she stood up carefully, being long past the age where she found stretching and unmixed pleasure. She walked to the door and gazed down at the envelope. She turned it over with a bare toe and read her name in bold print. Just as she was about to bend down to pick up the envelope, she realized who must have sent it. Fairmount's director, Mrs. Perdita Warren, must have shoved it under Perdita's door to be opened and read smartly upon rising. Stella gave a sniff and turned away. As far as she was concerned, any written directives from that woman could languish on the linoleum tile until they or the linoleum rotted. Back ramrod stiff, Stella washed her face at the sink in her little washroom and pulled on her fleece jacket and trousers over her underclothes. But as she was folding her nightgown under her pillow, she wondered whether her deduction had been correct. There had been something about that letter that didn't jibe with an administrative epistle. Stella approached the envelope with renewed interest. One hand on the door for balance, she picked it up and straightened it again. The envelope was a little longer than it was wide. With some surprise, she observed that her name on the white envelope was not typed or handwritten, but assembled. 
the black and white letters appeared to have been cut out, likely from a magazine, and glued onto the envelope. She slid her glasses a little further up her nose. She had never seen the like outside of police dramas on television. The cut-out letters gave the missive the air of a ransom note. She ran her thumb over the letters and found that the glue, or rather white paste, was still slightly tacky around the perimeter of her name. That was interesting. So the letters had been glued on so recently that they were not quite dry. Stella turned the envelope over. She noted that it was the sort of envelope that Christmas cards came with, the kind that had glue only at the bottom edge and not the sides, so that you could slip your thumb under the flap and open it quite easily. She remembered always having extra envelopes of this sort around, extras from Christmas cards she'd made errors on and had ripped up and tossed out. As she ran her thumb along the flap, she wondered whether she had sent out Christmas cards this year. But with whom did she trust the information that she had sold her house and moved into a care home? Stella slipped her thumb under the flap. Somebody knocked at the door. Stella started. Some instinct for secrecy caused her to slip the envelope out of sight between the thick pages of the prisoner of Zenda. Straightening the hem of her zip jacket and feeling a little foolish, she turned to answer the door. Chapter 23 Cheryl poked her head through the door into Stella's room, just her head, one shoulder of her blue teddy bear smock showing. At least twice a day, Stella thanked her stars the care worker was back after her recent trials. Just as I thought, you're awake, Cheryl said. Mrs. Ryman, you've got to jump on us all again. While the rest of the world is rising, will you walk with me to breakfast? I'll pour you an early cup of tea. Oh, I how kind of you, Stella said, with all the politeness her mother's upbringing had taught her. For that mysterious envelope called to her from between the covers of the prisoner of Zenda on her bedside table. Who would have gone to the trouble of clipping out the letters, comprising her name, and then gluing each of them on? What if she'd had a longer name than the uh, brief Stella? If she had been named Philomenia or Guinevere, what then? Would the sender have gone to all the trouble to clip out one by one the letters that would make up a longer name? All these questions begged for answers. Yet, after all the trouble Cheryl had so recently endured, Stella could not possibly refuse the invitation. Cheryl held the door for Stella, who shuffled along the corridor at Cheryl's side. You look pretty today, Mrs. Ryman, Cheryl said. Thank you, dear. Stella sighed. Pretty meant something quite different now from when she was young. She looked down at herself to see what she had dressed herself in today. It was one of those stretchy two-piece warm-up sets. 
tan stretch linen like the catalogue had called it and it was a far cry from the other offer in this style which thankfully she had resisted floral multi at work or at home back in her lifetime stella would not have been caught dead in a richmond ditch in one of those samey samey creations nor these awful shuffling beige slip-on shoes but she had a vague memory of having sent off for them before she checked herself in to fairmont manor back then three months before when stella was racked with pain and struggling to manage even buttons by herself elastic waistbands and velcro velcro closures had enticed her with the siren song of ease she wondered where her best red cashmere cardigan had gone bought 40 years ago before the new nonsense cashmere had slinked its way onto the market with its miraculously low price tag and pillings around the middle and under the arms perhaps junie had her red cardigan that one and the black one she had purchased in that splurge filled year when she was 48 and so chuffed that she still had her figure the forest green one she really missed was older still she had had it the year her husband left and junie still a baby had burped up on it although the cleaners had done wonders and where had her lovely wool skirts gone pleated plaid in misty heather colors their seams double stitched and no chance of cold sneaking up on you except for a rogue breeze from underneath but cheryl was speaking to her i heard you had a chat with the director on my behalf cheryl gave stella her beautiful smile and her next words were truly a gift thank you it's so nice to have somebody willing to stand by me not at all stella hesitated was your husband pleased at the way things turned out yes of course thank you for asking but cheryl's words had followed a telling pause something's up stella thought but before she could find a tactful way to pursue the subject they had reached the staff room door there they encountered Reliza. Stella saw that the girl was wearing that old yellow smock again, curse it, but then it might not be one of the handsome Dr. Terry's days at Fairmont. When Stella and Cheryl greeted Reliza, the young care worker hardly glanced at them. All her attention was on the piece of paper that she held in one hand. The other hand held an envelope. Letters came for people every day, of course more via computer than on paper these days of course still stella frowned over the coincidence as she walked on at cheryl's side then a chanelin robed resident one whose name stella couldn't remember called out to cheryl from the door with apologies the care worker darted away to help the other woman stella walked on towards breakfast at this hour corridor park was uninhabited 
as was the corridor outside the dining room. Even though it was not what you could call a thrill, Stella was enjoying being the first one up and out from Daffodil Corridor all on her own. It reminded her of her teaching days during report card season when enrolling teachers swept in late and inky fingered so that she, their school librarian, walked the halls alone on morning duty. The solitude never lasted, of course. A boys' basketball team would bang through the front doors, shouting, swinging their gym bags at each other's shins. A little later, she would see a second, larger rush of children, red-cheeked after their weight outside, ripping off their coats as they sped toward their classroom. Looking like junior businessmen late for work, Stella wished a kerfuffle of nine-year-olds would dash around the corner into Corridor Park later today to disturb the Greek chorus sitting hunched over their needlework. She imagined the scene and the fuss that Iolanth, Lucille, and the Nodder would make. She laughed aloud. It occurred to her that, even though she sometimes left her room early, she had never been first to breakfast before. This was entirely due to the maze-like corridors of Fairmont, and she felt fortunate that Cheryl had dropped her off so close to the dining room. For now, she asked herself a question. If she arrived first for breakfast, might she not get the first piece of toast? It might, it might be crisp. She supposed that warm was too much to ask for, but... Stella paused, gobsmacked, as a brand new thought presented itself to her. If she really was first to breakfast, she would have a heaven-sent opportunity of making a foray on Table 8, where the Greek chorus always sat, hogging all the little plastic containers of marmalade to themselves. Until this moment, Stella had not fathomed how unhappy it made her to be always stuck with strawberry, or worse, peach, or worse still, grape jelly, Stella shuddered. She pushed open the door to the dining room. Just inside the room, she paused for a moment, taking in the empty tables and the shining serving counter with its line of chrome trays. Neither of the cooks was in sight. Stella set her shoulders for a raid on table eight. She should have done this months ago. She made her way to the Greek chorus's table and took the top off the plastic container, holding the little packets of jams and jellies. She removed five marmalades from their supply, and another to make a rounded even number six. She hid the packets in her pocket, telling herself she was becoming quite the little thief. But was it really thievery? The tea bags and blue mug that she had stolen from the staff room and hidden under the art table in the storage room might reasonably be called swag, even though the mug was chipped. But a raid on marmalade was not thievery. It was justice. Taking these packets of 
golden shred was righting a great wrong. Stella felt that Churchill would have been the first to cheer her on, chewing his fat cigar and raising two fingers in a victory V. As well, Churchill had been British and would have valued marmalade on his bit of morning toast and roundly cursed grape jelly. Patting her marmalade-filled pockets, Stella walked over to the window and gazed up through the laurel branches into a pale, sunlit April sky. She could just make out the bit of grass that separated Fairmount Manor from the houses out behind it. She wondered who mowed it, and suddenly remembered the rich, sweet smell of cut grass, still wet with dew and sticking to the size of her shoes when she used to walk to school. Behind her, she heard the dining room door open and shut. She managed to pretend that she was still alone until she became aware of a strange noise. She did not at first identify it as human. It sounded more like an animal in pain. But when she turned around, she saw the gasping wheeze was coming from a woman in distress. The Greek chorus member, Stella had nicknamed the Nodder, had come into the dining room and was sitting, curly head bowed, at table eight. Her hands lay flat on the cloth before her. Between her hands, in the place where a breakfast plate belonged, lay a little pile of torn-up paper. At first, Stella was reminded so vividly of her attempts as a girl guide to build fires for her camping badge that she didn't understand. Of course, nobody would be so foolish as to think that the nodder, brows locked, chin trembling, was trying to light a little fire at table eight. The nodder, her breath labored, stared down at the bits of paper in front of her. The mottled posh of the woman's face was frightening, and the color seemed to Stella's eyes to be deepening. Stella was no doctor, but she identified this as one of those moments that could end badly, very badly, unless somebody took swift action. Don't move, Stella urged the nodder. I'll be right back. <clears throat> She turned and made for the corridor as quickly as her slip-ons would take her. Nor could she take the time to look for Dr. Terry. He was only in Fairmont Manor one or two days a week, and she didn't know which ones. The office would not yet be open. Her best bet was to find a care worker, and quickly. As she headed away from the dining room, she passed Thelma, tapping along on her way to breakfast. Stella asked, "'Have you seen Cheryl?' But this appeared to be one of Thelma's deaf mornings. Stella hustled by her, cursing her slip-ons, which she had bought as the most comfortable shoes available, short of slippers. Now that she thought about it, she could see what a small-minded purchase they had been, for Stella was a person who treasured the memory of a pair of coral calfskin pumps that she had loved like family. Now she wore these idiotic beige slip-ons, and they slowed her steps. Slush, 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 they went along the corridor. 
This investigative morning was not right for that sort of sound. This was a moment for the rapid clicking of heels on linoleum. A moment when you wanted to be wearing the sort of shoes that knows its business. However, she was moving as quickly as she could. Where were all the care workers? The hour was still so early that the corridors were empty and Stella passed only closed doors. Reliza, Cheryl, or Ollie could be in any of these rooms helping somebody through their morning wash, toileting. She knew she ought to hammer on each door in a systematic search, but that would take too long. The nodder needed help now. Therefore, Stella couldn't be thorough, so she opted instead for logic. Point one. Care workers arrived early on the job. Point two. Early arrivals implied, no, necessitated coffee. Stella hurried her shuffling steps along the corridor towards the staff room, trying not to imagine the nodder dying in the dining room with a little pile of ripped up letter on the table in front of her. <laughs>